Today's reading is Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. When the day of Pentecost arrived, and they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. The word of the Lord. So recently, I think it was about uh, three weeks ago, um, I celebrated my birthday. And uh, my birthday comes at the time of the year where it often sort of coincides with Memorial Day weekend. So it's a really, I think, maybe the best time of year to have a birthday. Um, and it's also very far from Christmas. So I, I know that I'm not going to get any double dipping or cheating around anything like that. And it's kind of far away, far away from Father's Day too. So there's no gift shortcutting that takes place. But it was a really nice, I mean, all that aside, it was a super nice weekend, a couple of cookouts. Um, uh, Pastor Matt even embarrassed me by leading the congregation and singing happy birthday to you. Uh, my wife, bless her, learned how to make key lime pie. Um, yeah, she made me a key lime pie. She even juiced the key limes, which is like, they're very small. And, uh, uh, and it was a lot of juicing. And then my mom, who's, she's an amazing chef, uh, Amy told my mom, and she's like, oh, I just buy the concentrate stuff, the key lime juice from concentrate. <laughs> Uh, uh, but she wanted it to be the best. She put candles on the pie. We sang. It was, a tr it was just a wonderful birthday weekend. And, and the thing about birthdays, whether we're into, you know, we go all out for our birthday, we want that, or, you know, we sort of want to be as low-key as possible. Um, you know, we, probably uniquely in human history, uh, but within the last couple hundred years, we at least know when we're supposed to celebrate our birthdays. You know, we, we, we're born and we get a document, an official certificate of birth saying, when we were born and where we were born and, and who did the delivering and who the parents are. And so, um, you know, when we're born, we sort of come with this official thing that tells us all the important details there are to know. There's no question, um, you know, for 20th, 21st century Americans mostly, you know, about the circumstances and the specific details of our actual birth. Just to say that probably... You know, if I ask for a show of hands, does anyone in here not know when they were born? If you don't know, you don't have to raise your hand. But my guess is nobody's raising their hand. But when it comes to the church, it's an interesting question. What's the birth date of the church? When was the church born? Now, this is kind of a leading question, obviously, since it's Pentecost. Uh, 
and if you don't know what Pentecost is, don't worry. Some, some folks grew up in a liturgical church where you followed the church calendar every single year. And some of you are like, I've never done that before. I don't know what you're talking about. You're talking about Pentecost. Are you talking about Pentecostals? But we'll sort of try to clear all of this confusion out. But, but there's lots of folks who claim that, that Pentecost, the first Pentecost that uh, Adelmo read about in Acts chapter 2 this morning, that that's really the birth date of the church. That was the day that the Christian church was born. And there are some clues there pointing to that. I mean, there's no cake in the passage, but there is fire, tongues of fire. You could almost argue that that's like candles being lit. But the reason that people say that the birth date of the church, the day the church was born, was on that very first Pentecost, is that something happened in the life of the disciples that day. When they got the Spirit, a, a, a new chapter was opened in the history of God and God's people. The disciples went from this, you know, tiny, scared, uncertain band of people who, who were waiting for God to do something to a movement of people with a mission. And so without that first Pentecost, without the gift of the Holy Spirit that day, there would be no church. The great... Uh, Anglican evangelical church statesman John Stott said this in his commentary on this passage. He says, without the Holy Spirit, Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, even impossible. There can be no life without the life giver, no understanding without the spirit of truth, no fellowship without the unity of the spirit, no Christ-likeness of character apart from his fruit, and no effective witness without his power. As a body without breath is a corpse, so the church without the Spirit is dead. So if you want to know what difference does the Holy Spirit make, I think uh, the late, great John Stott makes that point so beautifully. It makes all the difference in the world, that kind of difference. But the problem is that when it comes to describing the Holy Spirit and, and talking about Pentecost, which is, you know, we got pyrotechnics, we got noise, we got fire, uh, the preacher sort of becomes like a meteorologist describing a storm using, you know, images from a Doppler radar. And you go, wow, you experienced that storm? Look at the red and the orange and the yellow on there. Wasn't that amazing? And you're like, well, yeah, but what was more amazing was actually living through the storm. You know, it's one thing to look at those images and know that something powerful happened, but it's another thing entirely to have lived through it, to see the sky turn green, to feel the wind rush, to smell how the air changes right before a storm, to hear the peals of thunder and see the bright flashes of lightning. And so Pentecost is like living through a storm, and preaching on it is like showing you images from a radar. But my goal for us this morning is to understand this story in not necessarily a new, but perhaps a fresh way. To understand what it means for the church to have this new power, which leads to a new, a new mission, a new message, and to come from this new man on the mountain. So new power, new message, new man on the mountain. So first, new power. The most remarkable thing about the church isn't that it was born. You know, at this point, you could say, well, wow, it was just one of a number of obscure Jewish sects 
that were birthed in, in the first century. And, you know, lots and lots of religions and sects and cults have gotten started over the course of the millennia. I mean, there's too many to count. Uh, Michael J. Nelson, uh, one, of our, one of the congregants here, and uh, he, we co-host a podcast together called Like Trees Walking. Uh, wherever fine podcasts are sold, you can find Like Trees Walking. Um, but Mike, one of the times, he oftentimes will quiz me as part of this podcast. And one of the quizzes he gave me was on obscure Christian sex. And it was a really tough quiz. And these are ones that you've probably never heard of. I mean, who in here can tell me about the Bogomils or, you know, the Swedenborgians? Like, there's just a lot of movements that have gotten started that have fizzled out. So what's remarkable about, about the church and about Christianity isn't just that it was born, but, but really that it's had almost 2,000 birthdays at this point. And at many times it seemed like the church would die out or be dead by now. G.K. Chesterton, one of my favorites, uh, said as much in, in his book, The Everlasting Man. He said, the church has had a series of revolutions, and in each one of them, Christianity has died. Christianity has died many times and risen again, for it had a God who knew the way out of the grave. And a little later, Chesterton says that it seems many times that Christianity... Uh, was going to the dogs. It had gone to the dogs. But in each case, he said it was the dog that died. And in the great tides of, of history, it has seemed as if Christianity was going to get swept, swept away many times. You think about it first, the, the persecutions of the Roman Empire. I mean, this tiny little movement, this tiny little sect against, you know, the most powerful empire the world had ever known, not promising. And then you have Christianity sort of spread all over the empire, but then you have the rise of Islam from the deserts of Arabia in the 7th century that swept over almost all of Christendom. You go, the odds are not looking good. And then, you know, centuries later, you have the, the rise of the Enlightenment and rationalist skepticism, David Hume, you know, Voltaire. You think the acids of skepticism, they're surely going to eat away at the faith that won't make it. And then you have Darwin and the rise of scientific materialism and, and atheistic communism that did everything in its power to, to set itself up as an opposition to the Christian faith and crush it. And so given all these great tides of history, you'd think that at some point this little group of people, no matter how enthusiastic they were at the beginning, they're just not going to make it. History says the odds are stacked against them. And, and if they don't die, they'll sort of at only survive as this tiny little thing, you know, drained of its life force. But Christianity hasn't died. The church hasn't died. It's still alive. And the reason why the vitality that infused the church since its birth is seen here at Pentecost. On the vitality of the church, Chesterton says, a dead thing can go with the stream, but only a living thing can go against it. A dead dog can be lifted on the leaping water with all the swiftness of a leaping hound, but only a live dog can swim backwards. A paper boat can ride the rising deluge with all the airy arrogance of a ferry ship, but if the ferry ship sails upstream, it is really rowed by the ferries. 
And among the things that merely went with the tide of apparent progress and enlargement, there was many a demagogue or sophist whose wild gestures were in truth as lifeless as the movement of a dead dog's limbs wavering in the eddying water. And many a philosophy uncommonly like a paper boat of the sort that it is not difficult to knock into a cocked hat. But even the truly living and even life-giving things that went with that stream did not thereby prove they were living or life-giving. It was this other force that was unquestionably and unaccountably alive, the mysterious and unmeasured energy that was thrusting back the river. So that mysterious, that as Chesterton calls it, unmeasured energy. That's the power of the Holy Spirit that we see here at Pentecost that, that, that took this group of people who had nothing. They had no social prestige, really no money, no buildings, no official status, no political favor. They had nothing save the power of the Holy Spirit. And with that, a church is born. And, and if we keep reading in Acts chapter 2, we, we read that thousands are one to Christ that day. And then just a few chapters later, this group of people is accused of being folks who are turning the world upside down. So we read that. We read about that new power. We ask, what do we need to do if we are to fulfill our mission? Look at what the first disciples had. They had nothing but the power of the Holy Spirit. Nothing but this new power. And the new power comes, and it's noisy, says like the sound of a rushing wind, and it's bright like flaming tongues of fire. And so the, the sound and the fire, they both speak to the fact that what's happening is that God is showing up. And at first Pentecost, God is showing up and causing his own presence to rest on these people. God is infusing his very own breath of life into them. And the word for spirit in both Hebrew and Greek, it's the same as wind and breath. And so the thing is, in the Bible, both wind and breath, these are these external animating forces. Now, obviously, wind, we can see why that's an external animating force. But in Genesis, God forms Adam and then breathes the breath of life into his nostrils, and he lived. So breath of life is an external animating force. And, and in Genesis chapter 1, it says that the, that the wind of God, the Spirit of God, the breath of God, hovered over the waters of the deep at the dawn of creation. And so when God is going to do something powerful, something creative, something life-giving, that's when His Spirit shows up. Because without this new power, the church would have no inner life and no outer vitality. And here's the thing. So often when a church finds itself in a place of struggle, in decline, think about what resources do we have within us to turn things around? But the challenging truth, the hard truth, the frustrating truth for us as human beings, if something's wrong, if we have a challenge, if we face a problem, we want to know, well, what can we do about it? What can I do about it? But the gospel frustrates us a time and again as those who want to save ourselves, set things right ourselves, by saying that you're not in control here. The answer isn't in here, it's out there. It's in the spirit, which we can't control, which, as Jesus says in John, in the wonderful words of the King James Version, the spirit blows wherever it listeth. 
Meaning basically it just blows wherever it wants to go. You can't control it. There's some Nick Cage movie where he's a weatherman and, and he sort of confesses the fact that uh, he, people are mad at him always because like weathermen, they get it wrong. But he's like, I don't know, it's just wind. It just blows around everywhere. And oftentimes when it comes to the Spirit, we're just like that. We can't control it. We can't predict it. We just have to faithfully wait for it. And so the hard part for us as Christians and as a community of disciples is that we want to think the solution to our problems, you know, fixing them is, is just we need to find the right method or advice or system or program or consultant or recipe to follow. And there's definitely truth in that. But the sine qua non, the, you know, that without which not, of following Jesus faithfully and effectively, of being the church faithfully and effectively, it's the gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit which is yet another humbling reminder that all of the Christian life, the entirety of it, is encircled by grace, a gift, unearned. We can't force it. We just receive it. Existence itself is a gift. Life is a gift. Salvation, a gift. Mission and the power to do it, a gift. We couldn't do any of this on our own without this new power that comes from God's Spirit. All right, so we've seen Pentecost means that the church gets this new power to operate from in fulfilling its mission. But the result of that power is seen in the church's new message. The point of Pentecost, it's not the sound, it's not the sights, it's not even the miracle of speaking in new languages. It's in this message. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance and the people hear them speaking in their own native language and, and they're amazed and they say, wow, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So the substance of this message is the mighty works of God. It's about the death, life, death, resurrection, exaltation of Jesus. But there's something really, really important that they're hearing this message, this new message, each in their own native language. Luke, the author of Acts, is trying to tell us something here. And that's this. First, that this message is for everyone. That the Christian message about Jesus, about God's mighty works of power, is a universal message. You know, there is uh, no group of, of the folks, amongst the folks who are gathered in Jerusalem, that were excluded from hearing the Christian message. But just as important as the fact that this message about Jesus is universal is this second point that we can't miss and we have to dwell on. But that this message, this universal message, is translatable, it's available in the individual languages, in the specific languages of each and every one of these groups of people. And that's what's so revolutionary about the Christian message, is it's a universal religion, infinitely translatable into each particular context. You didn't have to learn Aramaic or Hebrew or Greek to become a Christian. Now, put it in today's terms, you know, you don't have to become an American or a Westerner to be a Christian. And in fact, I'm sure many of you in this room know that uh, this astonishing fact, which never ceases to amaze me about how God has been at work in the world over the course of the past century. So a century ago, 80% of the world's Christians lived in North America or Western Europe. 80%, that's like a heavy concentration in a particular cultural context. A century later, only 100 years later, that number is now 40%. That's incredible. 
And so what we see over the course of this past century is the reality of Pentecost playing itself out. That the Christian faith has always been and always has supposed to have been a global movement, right, of all the people of this world. You know, Christianity, of course, has had an indelible impact on, on the West and on European culture, but it's truly a global faith. And the genius of, of Christianity is its translatability, and that's not true of every universal faith. You know, Islam is another faith that makes, you know, universal claims about who God is and what it means to follow God. But the words of the Quran, as they were dictated, uh, as Muslims believe, were dictated by Allah to Muhammad in Arabic. So that's the message to understand. Of course, you can translate the Quran. You can go and buy a copy of it. But to really understand it, you have to learn Arabic because that's the pure dictated message of God. And so translation is in many ways a deformation of the message. It's a step away from the pure, unspoiled, divine word. But in Christianity, we see God taking the opposite tack, that translation doesn't obscure the message. It's right there at the beginning. In fact, it's inherent to the gospel itself that it be translatable into the idiomatic language of the people. And the point of the gospel is that it can find a place in every heart and hearth and homeland in its particularity. To go back to something I, I talked about a few weeks ago as we were introducing this, this series we're doing, that we're just taking a one-week pause from today about discipleship, looking at, at, at the Psalms of Ascent, but... Um, Andrew Walls, this great Christian missiologist, he said that inherent in, in the Christian message and the gospel itself is these two principles, a pilgrim principle and an indigenizing principle. And so the indigenizing principle means that at its core, the gospel can find a home in each and every human culture. And the pilgrim principle says that it's going to challenge aspects of every culture too. So the gospel both affirms culture and challenges culture wherever it finds home. And I think of our own, you know, American, Western, 21st century culture that we could see this playing out in a thousand different ways. I mean, I think one of the great things about uh, Western culture is, is this respect for the individual, right? The respect for individual conscience and individual rights. I think the gospel affirms that. But it also challenges individualistic notions of autonomy that says each and every person is a law unto his, her, his or her own self. And I was, um, recently there's this great book called God is Not One by uh, Stephen Prothero, who's a, sociolo or a, a sociologist of religion. Uh, he was at Boston, Boston University, but um, he talks about one of the great, he wrote this book about all the great religions of the world. An oft-neglected one would be the Yorba religion of Nigeria, which is sort of a, you know, uh, basically in, in certain West African cultures, there's this idea that the world is just alive with spirits. Spirits are responsible for and a part of everything. And so the gospel goes into a West African context like that and affirms the world being infused with spiritual meaning. Yes, absolutely. But also challenges a kind of superstition that can be born from that. So in cultures as diverse as, you know, post-Enlightenment Western culture or uh, 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 Yorba religion in West African culture, the gospel can find a home in both of those cultures, in both of those places. We see that at Pentecost and can affirm aspects and challenge them. 
And so Christianity, we see right at Pentecost, this new message, no language or culture has pride of place or prominence over any others. And so if we truly want to embrace diversity, uh, look at the Christian church all over the world. And actually some of the most homogenous places can be those places that are weird, Western, Enlightenment, industrialized, rich, and democratic. Think about the phenomena of uh, gentrification. You know, every gentrifier would say, I love diversity. And then they move into a neighborhood and, and diverse folks move out and homogeneity creeps in. But the new message Christians have about God's mighty deeds of power, which again is about the life, death, resurrection, exaltation of Christ, it's for everyone. It belongs to no one. And as uh, Eugene Peterson, can't let a sermon go by without quoting him, said, Christ plays in 10,000 places. All right, so the new message, this universal story proclaimed in the diverse idioms of every human culture. All right, so new power, new message. But last thing we see at Pentecost is this comes from a new man on the mountain. What does this mean? So I've been talking about Pentecost, and I've been referring to it exclusively as we see it in Acts 2, as this Christian, you know, event. But Pentecost itself is a Jewish festival, one of the three great festivals of the year. And originally, it's an agricultural festival to celebrate the beginning of the wheat harvest. And it was 50 days after Passover. So Penta, 50, 50 days after Passover. And because it came 50 days after Passover, it went from being just an agricultural festival to being associated with Passover, with the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Because if you're reading through Exodus, what happens? You know, Passover happens, go through the Red Sea, gather at Sinai, do the math about 50 days later, Moses goes up on the mountain. And so we hear echoes of that Sinai, that Mount Sinai passage in the Pentecost passage this morning. And the key thing is to compare it and then see the difference. So in the Old Testament, Moses goes up on top of Mount Sinai to receive the law. This law is given on stone tablets. And the people had to stay far away from the mountain. They were afraid. There was lightning and earthquakes and fire and smoke. And Moses goes up there as the mediator. He stands between God and the people. And we learn later throughout the narrative that Moses is an imperfect mediator. He failed, and because of that, he wasn't allowed to enter into the promised land. Now we compare that and we contrast that with what we see in the New Testament where we have a new and perfect mediator, Jesus. And Jesus doesn't just go up on the mountain. Just, just before this, uh, Acts tells us that, that Christ ascended into heaven. And instead of giving a new law written on stone tablets, we're given this good news of the gospel written on human hearts. And instead of fire being on the mountain, there's fire in our hearts. And instead of the people being afraid, the people are now amazed and the disciples are filled with joy. And I think it's this joy, this sort of reckless, careless, enthusiastic joy. That's why the scoffers on that first Pentecost morning said, well, the disciples have had too much new wine. It wasn't just that they were speaking in foreign languages. I mean, that would be weird, but why would someone speaking in a foreign language make you think they're drunk? I think it had to be with the manner in which they were living their lives, this joy, this, this bold, reckless joy that they were exuding. Now, oftentimes, you know, I think if you walk into a church, you probably wouldn't say the people in there were drunk. You might say those folks need to loosen up. They sort of need a few drinks or, or oh, I'm sorry, I think I walked into a funeral home. 
But where God's spirit is alive and active, there is joy. And there's joy because we don't have to conjure this power on our own. It's given to us. And joy because our job isn't to tell people about Jesus, uh, and so then they become like us. You know, we're a sort of a clone factory. You take people uh, from the streets, bring them in here, and, and we sort of, uh, you know, teach them manners, and they go out, and they're exactly, we're all exactly the same. We're all just copies of ourselves. We don't have to do that. No, we get to share this message about Jesus, and God's Spirit is going to cause it to take root and grow in, in diverse and surprising ways across cultural boundaries. And joy because we have Jesus, we, we, we have the perfect mediator who through the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in our hearts. And so if we walk away with anything, I think the most astounding truth of Pentecost is this, is that God lives here. And he lives here and that God has chosen to do that. He's chosen to take up residence in our hearts and, and in the communities of those who trust in his name. And it didn't have to be that way. And so let us never lose sight of just how amazing, how astounding, how unexpected but wonderful that truth is. God has chosen to live here and here. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Please pray with me.